This episode is brought to you by Knotgrass History, creators of Homeschool History. Regardless of where your child goes to school, Homeschool History helps you find kid-friendly books, videos, games, websites, and virtual field trips related to history, geography, and government. Whether you want to learn more about the topics covered in the past in the curious, or explore something completely different, Homeschool History will save you time and enhance learning for your child. Access this web-based app on any device, bookmark resources in your own custom groups, and share your ratings and reviews with other parents. Start searching today at homeschoolhistory.com. Hey everybody, happy summer to you. I, for one, am excited about the warmer weather, and I'm very glad that the cicadas haven't gotten loud enough in my neighborhood to be heard through this microphone that I'm talking into right now. Last week, I got to hang out with the students from Paris Independent Schools in Paris, Kentucky. Got to hang out with elementary, middle, and high school students, and it was a blast. Paris is, of course, the home of Garrett Morgan, who we featured in episode 30. So hello again to you of Paris. Speaking of Paris, this episode almost entirely takes place in Paris, but not Paris, Kentucky, Paris, France. You are going to meet an amazing musician named Django Reinhardt, as well as an amazing person who led an amazing life named Eugene Bullard. I need to thank my friend Joe Watts for his help with the music on this episode. One thing I've never learned how to do is play Django Reinhardt's music very well at all, so it's good to have friends who can cover for you. Thanks, Joe. In this life, you can meet many people who believe that a man named Django Reinhardt was the greatest guitar player ever in the history of the world. That's a silly thing to say, really. It's completely impossible and unnecessary to try to rank artists and musicians, because people like different things. They react to things in different ways. And look, no one sees or hears the world in the same way. That's the beautiful thing about art. It's totally open to interpretation. So I'm not going to tell you that Django was the greatest. That's an impossible thing to say. But without a doubt, he was truly great. A one-of-a-kind musician, and one of the most important in history. Django Reinhardt, and that's spelled D-J-A-N-G-O for anyone wondering how you might spell a name such as Django, was born to a Romani community in 1910. The Roma, or Romani people, had a long history of moving, never settling down for long. And in this regard, Django was very much a reflection of his community. He was born in Belgium, and his family lived in a caravan, a horse-drawn wagon that was their small home. Encamped alongside other Romani people, the group could leave at any time, and often they did. In fact, Django spent most of his youth moving around France. There is some disagreement on where the Romani people originated, because they had been roaming for centuries by the time that Django was born. But it is accepted by most that they originated in northern India, and as the poorest people in that time and place, they were forced to fight in armies to protect their homeland. Around the year 1000, when the armies fell and their land was conquered, many were forced to leave. They headed east across Asia and Europe. The Roma name likely comes from the fact that the people had spent many generations in Romania. But the Romani are not Romanian. 
During the Middle Ages, the Romani were enslaved by the ruling class in Romania, including by a man known as Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad Dracul, or to some, Dracula. It is here that they learned many of the skills that they would pass on, even to the generations alive at the time that Django came into the world. Because they traveled near constantly, and because they were not interested in learning to fit in with cultures around them, and because they were almost always persecuted through the centuries, the Romani people were often looked down upon, and typically not trusted by the people amongst them. All of this would be more than enough to make anyone want to stay on the move. As a young boy, Django Reinhardt was immediately drawn to the rich music surrounding him in the Romani encampments. His father was a musician and his mother was a dancer. Many of his aunts and uncles and siblings and neighbors played traditional Romani melodies around campfires nearly every night. And as he made his way around the daytime streets of Paris in the 1910s, he also heard the popular music of the day, and both influences became a deep part of him. When he was still a boy, less than 10, he got his hands on his first instrument, a banjo that had the six-string neck of a guitar attached to it. This was loud, bright, and perfect for playing hours on end to earn money from passing Parisians on busy street corners and town squares. By the time he was 15, he was bringing home respectable income, playing not just traditional music on street corners, but also popular French musette music in cafes and clubs. But around the age of 16, he heard something completely new, and he would never be the same. France played host to many black Americans, and after World War I, many stayed. While taking a break from his gigs at dance halls, Django would stand at the window of a few jazz clubs in Paris and listen in amazement to the exciting jazz music brought from America. The drums and horns blasted an energy he had never heard, and the piano and bass created a harmony that excited his ears. Most thrilling to him were the times that the musicians would improvise. The musicians would play intricate and technical or simple and moving melodies that they made up on the spot. And it was always a perfect fit into the tune that they were playing. Django felt a connection to his soul. Going far out of his way to do so, he would listen to American records of Louis Armstrong and other early jazz musicians any chance he could, which wasn't often. Luckily, he had a musical memory, one that would make most other musicians jealous. The tunes and rhythms would live in his head, and he'd find ways to recreate them with his guitar. Very quickly, he had gotten so good on his instrument that his name was known around Paris. And of course, with a name like Django, it was easy to remember. Even early on, most people didn't even bother using a last name. Django was a rising star. The older musicians he played with tolerated his interest in American jazz to a degree, but the improvisations didn't fit the traditional melodies that they were being paid to play. Stop it with the fancy stuff, huh? What, are you jealous of my super sweet string skills? This stuff just comes to me. It's as easy as breathing, I tell ya. Why do you have to play so many notes? So many different notes in so many different ways. Ah, uh, it's simple. Because... I can. 
When he was 19, his life would change tremendously. An English band leader who played the music that Django longed to play came to hear this boy wonder, and he offered him a job on the spot. It was full-time, paid well, and he'd even be a featured soloist in concerts. It was an exciting opportunity, even if the idea of leaving the Roma encampment made him a little uncomfortable. One night, that very same week, Django arrived home to his caravan after a gig. He was probably brimming with excitement for what the future held for his burgeoning music career. Lost in his thoughts around his new opportunity, he was snapped back to his surroundings and startled by what he thought was the sound of a mouse inside his rolling house. Django would never discover what made the noise. The wagon was filled with celluloid flowers that his wife had made for a funeral. Fake flowers made of an early plastic, which happened to be extremely flammable. The candle he grabbed to catch a glimpse of the rodent set fire to one of the flowers, and within moments, all of them were ablaze. The caravan, his small home, was quickly engulfed in flames. His wife got out, and eventually Django did too, but his body was burned terribly. He was left not just in terrible pain, but with limited use of his body as well. It would take almost a year for him to walk again. More devastating for Django, though, was what the fire did to his left hand. The same hand he used to fret the neck of the guitar so nimbly, so creatively, so effortlessly. Because of the burns and scars, his ring finger and pinky, which were essential to his music, were no longer usable for playing his beloved guitar. They curled towards his palm and would barely move no matter how hard he tried. Though his legs improved, his hand never really would. It was a devastating blow for a young musician who had already shown so much talent and who, everyone knew, would only grow in his genius. But this would not be the end of Django's music career. In fact, it was actually the beginning. When those people who believe that Django is the greatest guitar player ever talk about his incredible music, they talk about the music he made after he was left with only two guitar-playing fingers on his left hand. At the time, one of his friends from the Roma community brought his guitar to the hospital while he recovered, and Django worked to adapt everything he knew and began to play with only his two fingers, the index and the middle. When he finally showed up to a campfire jam session, the Romani musicians viewed him with pity and expected him to struggle with the guitar. Were they right? Oh, they were worse than right. They were wrong. Django had learned to do more with two fingers on a guitar than most could do with four. So now Django devoted himself to jazz. At this point, the music was largely dominated by loud instruments like trumpets and drums, not acoustic guitars. One night, while stepping off stage to change a broken string, Django met a violinist named Stefan Grappelli, who could play with the same fire and passion and magic that Django managed on his guitar. They played together for fun after gigs, but soon they became the featured act, co-leading a quintet of acoustic string instruments playing their unique approach to jazz. They were known as the Quintet of the Hot Club of France. While still young, he had the opportunity to jam with his hero, Louis Armstrong, who was visiting France in the 1930s. 
But that was just the beginning of his rise to international stardom as the leading guitarist in jazz. But the 1930s and 40s also brought something else into his life. War. As World War II progressed, the Nazi army forced its way across Europe and occupied a growing list of countries. As they did, Jewish people and many others were persecuted and millions sent to concentration camps. The Romani people were targeted and subjected to the same harsh treatment and terrible fortunes as the Jewish people in their area. Django would escape this fate because the places he performed in Paris were popular spots for vacationing Nazi officers. These people enjoyed hearing the greatest guitar player in the world. He was spared because of his talent, but thousands from his contemporary Romani community were not. When the war ended, the biggest star of American jazz contacted Django. Duke Ellington wanted to bring Django to American shores and tour the country featuring his guitar alongside Duke's jazz orchestra. Duke even volunteered to pay for Django's travel expenses. Django, of course, accepted, but not being used to such an event, he didn't pack any luggage. He didn't even show up with a guitar, figuring someone would just give him one. He did not return to France with a free guitar, but he did leave America with a new addition to his wardrobe. For all of his life, he had worn boring, scratchy underwear. And on the very first night of the tour, Django walked into the train car where many of the band members were getting ready for bed. He was flabbergasted by the silk boxer shorts they all wore most of them adorned with floral patterns and other wild decorations in all colors. A few minutes later, he visited Duke's private car to say goodnight, and there stood the king of jazz in the fanciest underwear Django had ever seen. You're crazy, he reportedly said. The tour was not great. Django was eager to get home, and he showed up late to a few of the performances, which didn't look good in the press, but he still won over the audiences who got to witness the two great musical minds share the stage. And when Django boarded a ship back to Europe, he had a suitcase full of fancy floral underwear, all to himself. Perhaps because of his mysterious origins, or the tragic accident that left his hand so terribly scarred, or perhaps because he died at the relatively young age of 43, Django has captured the imagination of many. But honestly, the reason for his adoration is the music he gave the world. It's perfect and powerful, beautiful and sweet, brilliant and unusual. Like a lot of instrumental music, particularly on old recordings, Django's music may be a bit of a challenge to listen to at first, but quickly, it reveals so much about the joyous spirit of the man who made it that it will put a smile on any listener's face. And that's why Django lives on. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the chart-topping Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure. Three rounds of fresh trivia Every single week, movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. Hooray! The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages, teens, toddlers, adults. It doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. 
Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Okay, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and I'm going to turn it over to Zoe. Hello, my name is Zoe, and I live in Boston. Have you heard of the Great Balloon Fest of 1986? The United Way of Cleveland, Ohio, broke and set a world record for releasing almost one and a half million balloons. It didn't have such a great ending, though, with some people injured and a lot of people sued. Two men who had gone on a fishing trip could not be found by the Coast Guard because they kept thinking that the balloons in the water were bobbing heads. A sad ending to a really cool story. Thanks for listening. I love you guys. Bye, Mick. Oh, Zoe, thank you so much. That was awesome. If you have a story you want to tell and you can do it in 30 seconds, then I want you to record it and send it our way. There's instructions on the website, or you can just email an audio file, take it on a phone or something like that, to hello at thepastandthecurious.com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Oh, yes, it is quiz time once again. Here we go. Question number one. To be on the cover of Time Magazine is a momentous honor, no doubt. In 1949, Time Magazine made history when it featured a jazz musician on the front cover for the first time. Who was it? It was Louis Armstrong. Later, Louis Armstrong was named one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century and one of the 20 most important Americans of all time by the same magazine. This put him alongside George Washington, Abe Lincoln, Henry Ford, and FDR. The young boy from New Orleans would go on to profoundly shift popular music, and he was one of the most recognizable people in the world for most of his adult life. Question number two. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh became the first person to succeed in a non-stop solo transatlantic flight. Do you know the name of his airplane? The custom-built single-engine plane was called the Spirit of St. Louis. It was expensive, and though Lindbergh used much of his own salary as an airmail pilot to pay for it, other support came from members of his flying club in St. Louis. He made the flight from Paris to New York in 33 and one half hours, which is a long time to stay awake, whether you're alone or not. Question number three. The man in our next story learned to fly in France, just like another black American woman featured previously on our show. Do you know or remember who was the first licensed female black pilot? It was, of course, a favorite story of the show, Bessie Coleman. 
a woman who worked in a manicure salon and a chili parlor, to save up enough money so that she could travel across the Atlantic to learn to fly. She drew crowds as a barnstormer, and people of all walks of life paid to see her amazing stunts and airborne tricks. And despite much of America being segregated at the time, she refused to perform for any audience that was divided by race and ethnicity. Eugene Ballard knew that he had lived an unusually eventful life. He also knew that it would be hard to make sure that his story lived on after he was gone, so he figured it would be smart to write an autobiography. But publishers had a problem with the book he wrote to chronicle his storied life. They felt no one would possibly believe that it was true. There were so many amazing moments, so many amazing people. It was crazy to think that one man had done so much. So it went unpublished. Now the title he gave the book was All Blood Runs Red. These are the same words that he painted on the side of his fighter plane. But while you might think that those words were meant to scare an enemy pilot like the 20th century version of a pirate flag or something like that, rest assured, they were not. Those words were there because Eugene knew in his heart that no matter what people look like, they were all the same inside, and they all deserved the same opportunities. He spent his whole life believing that and fighting for it. And also, let's say very early on in the story that Eugene was a whole lot more than a war hero. He was one of the most accomplished and well-connected men of the early 1900s. Eugene was born in 1895 in the state of Georgia in the American South. Life in general looked to be difficult for a boy whose mother was a Native American from the Creek Nation and whose African-American father came from a family that had been enslaved in French-speaking Haiti. His mother died young, and his father William dedicated his life to helping his children through hard work, education, and leaving room for dreams. Still, as a young boy, Eugene witnessed the cruel racism that his father had to deal with in his work life and he became confused as to why people would treat anyone in such a way. His father, well aware of the boy's brilliance and trusting nature, told him that across the ocean in France, he could find people who would accept a young black man and also opportunities to excel, and Eugene never forgot it. Following a particularly violent assault on his family, Eugene ran away fed up and ready to move on from the racism that he felt in his home in the American South in the early 1900s. He actually found a temporary home living amongst a group of Romani immigrants who had left England for America, and they echoed the same sentiments that his father had shared with him about France, and they too encouraged him to cross the ocean. He caught a train to the coast of Virginia, but with no money to pay for a ticket, he had to ride without being detected. So, without anyone realizing it, he snuck into the underside of the train and held on for dear life with the tracks just inches from his body. Not a recommended mode of travel, and definitely not a safe one. In Newport News, Virginia, the young man saw ships of all kinds heading to hundreds of unfamiliar destinations. Any one of them could have carried him away, but France was his goal. Of course, that didn't really matter since he still had no money to purchase fare. 
If stowing away on the train worked, well, it might as well work for the boat, he figured. One boat, he noticed, was filled with sailors who spoke an unfamiliar language. He figured it was French, so he hid on board until they set sail. Was he right? He was worse than right. He was wrong. Turns out the language that confused his ears was German, and this ship filled with German sailors was headed for... Scotland. This was closer to France than he currently was, but still not quite a bullseye. Safely away from the shore, and unlikely to be taken home, he revealed himself to the sailors. And everyone took a liking to him. They appreciated how hard he worked, and were happy to take him overseas. And something else happened that came in handy. He picked up some of the German language. After a short while in Scotland, struggling to understand the heavy accents, he found a job at a gym. Surrounded by boxers training, he started alongside them when his shifts were over. And before long, he was winning fights in the ring. And after that, he toured Europe on the boxing circuit as a welterweight. Boxing took him through Germany, where his German language skills were heightened again. And then the tour made it to Paris, France. This was where he always wanted to be. And it's where he stayed. He loved France. And for the most part, it lived up to its expectations. This is why, when World War I broke out, the 19-year-old enlisted to fight for France, his newly adopted country. But within a year, he had suffered two major injuries while fighting in the trenches. And after that, it was agreed upon that his time fighting on the ground was done. So, Eugene Bullard set his sights on the sky. Nowhere in the world had there been a black fighter pilot at this time. In fact, the job of pilot in general was pretty new in 1915, but there certainly wasn't a clear pathway for a black man to learn to fly. But Eugene was never interested in hearing no. One friend told him he was a fool for believing that it was possible. There was never a doubt in Eugene's mind. So they bet money on whether he could achieve his relatively newfound goal of flying in the war. And his friend, learned what we with the gift of hindsight can see so clearly. Never bet against Eugene Bullard. He flew over two dozen missions and earned the nickname the Black Swallow. After the war, he was looking for something new to do. War injuries made returning to boxing seem like a bad idea, but he was living in the same city and cultural magnet as Django Reinhardt. And like the Romani musician, he was inspired by the American jazz musicians in Paris. Much like he took up boxing and became a professional, the former athlete and soldier took up the drums. Before long, he was on jazz stages swinging with the best of them. He was also the host at the club where he played the drums, and for years it was one of the hottest spots in town. It was the place to see and be seen. And not to mention, hear great music. Before long, Eugene managed and then owned his own jazz club. As the head of one of Paris's hottest nightclubs, his circle of friends grew to include some incredible people. Josephine Baker, the world-famous singer and spy, was a regular, and is actually said to have been a babysitter for Eugene's children. He also became friends with the most important figure in American music, Louis Armstrong. That friendship endured. Eugene would later travel with Louis, working as a tour manager and translator in Europe and Africa. Eugene even hired some incredible people. Langston Hughes is remembered as one of the most important writers and poets of the 20th century. 
He would be one of the central figures of the Harlem Renaissance and a revolutionary figure not just for black Americans, but all Americans who would feel the power in his words. As a young man who temporarily left America for Paris, he washed dishes in Eugene's club. Of course, later during World War II, France would be occupied by Nazi forces, meaning Paris was technically under German control. Now during this time, the City of Lights was a place that powerful Nazi officers and officials would spend time trying to relax or at least be away from the war front. And Eugene's club was a popular place for these men to meet and discuss sensitive subjects. They assumed that the American man near their table was not able to understand their German, but thanks to that boat full of sailors he crossed the Atlantic with, well, Eugene understood every word that they said, and he was able to send updates and important overheard information to British and French officials who were hungry for details to aid their fight against the Nazi army. Eugene Ballard, boxer, soldier, fighter pilot, celebrity, jazz drummer, club owner, spy. He did it all. Some of it he did twice. He closed up his shop when the German occupation got a little too imposing. And what did he do? But re-enlist as a fighter pilot for France. But not before trying to fly for the American army first, who turned him down. When the war was over, he returned to his jazz club to find that it had been destroyed in the last part of the war. The rubble and ruins were certainly painful to see though he was grateful for the memories and the relationships that he had made inside those fallen walls. Luckily, he was given a reparations payment to get back on his feet from the damage, and he used that money to finally return to his native America. He bought an apartment in Harlem, New York, and began working a series of odd jobs. For the most part, he was unknown in America, which makes sense considering he'd spent his entire adult life in Europe, he did play a significant role in a pivotal moment during the civil rights struggle in Peekskill, New York. But other than that, he was completely out of the news. He sold perfume. He worked at the docks. He kept to himself. It is said that when French President Charles de Gaulle visited America in 1960, he asked the American president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, for the chance to see his old friend from the war. Bullard, he explained, was a hero in France had been awarded the highest honors, and had even been selected to relight the eternal flame at France's own Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. France was in Bullard's debt, he said. President Eisenhower didn't know who he was talking about. The rest of America learned about this same man, this friend of France, from a television interview that came about quite randomly. One of Bullard's last jobs was as the elevator attendant at New York City's 30 Rockefeller Square. This building is famous for many television and radio shows produced inside, and one of those shows was the Today Show, which is still on now. The original host, Dave Garraway, happened to strike up a conversation with Bullard, the elevator operator, after noticing the military medals that he had pinned to his work uniform. Garraway quickly realized how amazing of a man Eugene was, and he was so floored by the stories from his life that he invited him to talk live on NBC's The Today Show. In late 1959, Eugene shared the amazing details of his life for hundreds of thousands of viewers, and letters poured in from grateful and surprised citizens from all corners of America. Even if he didn't get to publish his autobiography, he did get to tell his story. Eugene died two years later, in 1961, 
and was buried as he had wanted to be, in a French uniform. If you ever find yourself near the Flushing Cemetery in Queens, you can pay him a visit, along with his old friend, Louis Armstrong, who's buried nearby. Well, all right, there's episode 56. Thank you for listening, and I got some Patreon people to thank, so let's do this. Whitney and Grayson, hello from me and Dr. Awkward. Thank you, Whitney and Grayson. Mason Olfert in Portland, Oregon. I'm excited that you're out there. Thank you for listening. Stephanie Horowitz, hello to you. And Nash Andriata, hello to you as well, Nash. Finn Carley in Canada. How's it going, Finn? I'm so glad that you're up there, out there listening. And Anton and Eric in Bel Air, Maryland. Anton and Eric, I hope you're well. In Bel Air, Maryland. Yes, and Elliot and Leela in Maine. What's up, y'all? I've had some conversations with your parents. We've uh, bonded over our love of uh, Graham Parsons, you know? So, um, yeah, uh, your, your, your parents are cool. But I'm glad that you are out there, Elliot and Leela. Thank you for enjoying the show. Oh, and this is a good one, too. Sophia, Eli, and Zach Bizdak, hello to you. I am super excited because I got to see pictures of your visit to Libba Cotton Park, which is in New York. Uh, and I think that that was super awesome that you went, and I'm excited that you were uh, enthused enough to go visit. So awesome. And thank you for sharing that. And last but not least, Max Rikasada. I hear it's your birthday, Max. Happy birthday to you, buddy. I'm so glad that you are out there. I'm so glad you enjoy the show. And that goes for everybody, but especially for Max right now. Happy birthday, because I think it's this week. Thank you all for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. It's a pleasure for me to put this together, and I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. This was a really special episode for me, and there's more next month. Stay tuned. When you stir it up Every honeybee filled with jealousy When they see you out with me I don't blame the goodness, no The honey suckle rose